Hey guys, I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle. And, and we're, we're from, from Nature vs. Narcissism, Narcissism, a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests. Since I've always been fascinated by true crime, I wanted to delve deeper into the criminal mind and discuss why these criminals commit these vile acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was it just plain old narcissism? Join us every week for a brand new episode. You can find us on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and Podbean. Don't, Don't call, call the cops! cops. Bye! Bye. In August of 1931, police searching a farm in Quiet Dell, West Virginia, made a gruesome discovery. Five bodies, three of them children, buried in a shallow drainage ditch. The women had been lured to the farm with the promise of marriage by Harry Powers, a serial killer who would later become known as the Bluebeard of Quiet Dell. In popular culture, Harry Powers became Harry Powell, the itinerant preacher and terrifying antagonist of the 1953 novel The Night of the Hunter by Davis Grubb and its 1955 film adaptation. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. We just wanted to dive right into a couple of things that we wanted to promote. Yes, exciting things for us and hopefully for uh, some of you listeners out there. That's right. So um, as you've probably already heard, we do have a Facebook discussion group called Cult of Based on a True Crime. But, you know, we've heard that Facebook is kind of changing their algorithm and our page may not get as much visibility. So um, the group is a wonderful place to interact with Chelsea and myself. We've had a lot of good time, um, listener feedback and, you know, a lot of fun topics that we get to chat about. Hands down, my favorite place to interact with listeners. We post a lot about, you know, what we're watching, about exciting stuff in the news, exciting new movies coming out. So definitely, definitely join. You do need to request to join, but we're pretty fast at accepting requests when we get them. So please look us up just uh, in the search bar type cult of based on a true crime. Yeah, totally. Um, And then following that up with some exciting news, our Patreon is live. Yes, very exciting. We already have a few supporters that we are so grateful for and we're really excited. On the first, we're going to be mailing out the um, packages of goodies. At the $1 level, we have our kind of square sticker you've probably seen on our social media. But at the $3 level, we have two exclusive die cut stickers. Um, one is the the clapboard logo. The other is kind of the text from our uh, cover art. And it says fan club. So based on true crime fan club. And then at the $5 level, we have the two die cut stickers and also buttons. Three one inch buttons. One says based on true crime. The other says I love true crime. And the other says I love horror movies. Yeah. So, uh, you know, getting some rewards out there and just wanted to give um, everyone a way to support our podcast. Oh, yeah. And also we're going to have a bonus episode coming out on the first as well. The patrons that we have voted on the topic and the winner, the 
clear winner was Silence of the Lambs, which yes. I'm excited for. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. So I think we're going to have a really fun discussion about that that we will have up for our Patreon supporters. So join us on Patreon based on a true crime. Uh, if you have a chance, please review us on whatever podcatcher, uh, whatever method that you um, use to subscribe to the show. It helps with our visibility. It helps um, make me happy. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you don't have iTunes and you can't review, the best thing to do is tell a friend, you know, post about us on Facebook, post about us on Instagram, post about us on Twitter, wherever you are, and just uh, spread the word because, you know, we, we really want to keep growing. And that's the best way. You guys are the best way for us to keep growing. So. We do with one caveat, and that is if you can't say something nice, don't review at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> And if you follow on Twitter, you might get that reference. But speaking of reviews, we did get a couple new reviews that I want to thank. Uh, one is from Lust Mordia, which is, uh, well, Lust Mordia Lucy, a.k.a. Lee. If you're not listening to Lust Mordia yet, you should really go check it out. It's an awesome Columbus-based true crime podcast. Uh, we got to meet her in person, which was a lot of fun. And she's also one of our new Patreon supporters, which is so rad. So um, thank you, Lee. Also, thanks to our friends at Off the Cuffs, who happen to really like my laugh. <laughs> so thank you, guys. I happen to really like your laugh, too. Why, thank you. Um, and also Apple 717 which I believe is the same Apple that I was talking to on Twitter, who is a murderino. So uh S-S-D-G-M, J-Apple. And uh, if you're a different J-Apple and you don't get that, oh well. Um, so yeah, so shout outs uh, again to Lust Mordia and also Murder and Such, two rad Ohio true crime podcasts that we've talked about extensively. And they're both supporting us on Patreon. We really, really appreciate it. So thank you guys so much. Everyone should go check out their shows because they're awesome. I listen. I get so excited every time they have a new episode out. Also, Cowtown Crime Blog, which is run by a member of our cult, uh, Marguerite. We're going to be featured on her blog. We're really excited about it. We answered some really cool questions about kind of what goes on behind the scenes here at Based on a True Crime. So we'll be posting links to that. Uh, when it's up, everyone should go check it out. Lastly, our promo for this week was from Nature vs. Narcissism, another Ohio-based true crime podcast that we have talked about. Uh, they just did a switcheroo with their hosts. Now it's um, Heather and Rochelle, who we met. They're great people, and she's been working her way through the alphabet of serial killers. Right now, actually on Friday, they released the L episode, and it's the Toolbox Killer and the Interstate Killer. So check that out for sure. Yeah, and definitely obviously, do. if they're already on L, they have plenty of back catalog to catch up on. So just binge them. You yeah. know you want to. All right. Uh, we have some correct guesses for Teaser Tuesday. Tashana from Something's Not Right uh, guessed correctly on Instagram. So thank you for, for jumping in and uh, getting the answer right. And also our reigning champion, Taylor, a.k.a. ChippyTFT on Twitter. <laughs> go, uh, go Taylor. And uh, also Kat on Facebook. So everyone, you all rock. And thanks for the correct guesses. And so quickly. Yes. And our teaser Tuesday was a picture of Robert Mitchum who plays Harry Powell in the movie The Night of the Hunter. I had not even heard of this movie actually until we were at my parents' house for Christmas. And my mom kind of offhand mentioned this movie being really scary for her when she watched it as a kid. So I looked it up on Wikipedia and I was like, it's based on a real serial killer that I had also never heard of. So uh, we were pretty excited. We immediately added it to our queue and 
now we're doing it. So this is Night of the Hunter and the story of serial killer Harry Powers. Let's get into it. Harry Powers was born Herm Drenth in Berta, Holland to Wilco and Janty Drenth on November 17th, 1892. By 1910, Powers was already known to be a congenital liar and had been caught stealing and trespassing. In April of 1910, Powers was sent to the United States to work on a farm belonging to family friends in a Dutch community in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. However, he only lasted several months before he left due to his dislike of being told what to do. Eventually, the rest of his family emigrated from Holland, and in 1917, the family bought 40 acres of land and moved 250 miles north of their community. The following year, Powers assumed his most famous alias, Harry Powers, and moved to Madison, Wisconsin with a girlfriend. In 1919, they were arrested for vehicle theft, and Powers was sent to the Dane County Jail. His girlfriend snuck in tools, and Harry and another inmate, Walter Bartkowski, successfully escaped. Not long after, in 1921, Powers had yet another run-in with the law. At the time, he had developed feelings for 20-year-old Rose Strickland. When she married another man, Powers broke into their home, stole several personal belongings, and tried to set the home on fire. Powers was caught and served less than 15 months in prison. After his release, Powers dropped all contact with his family and picked up a new scheme for making money, participating in what was known as the Widow Racket. This racket consisted of contacting wealthy older women through matrimonial agencies, which were basically Lonely Hearts ads, and swindling them for financial gain. On April 16th of 1924, Powers, using the alias of Joseph Gildow, married 50-year-old Allie Province. Shortly after the wedding, Powers slipped her sleeping powder in her coffee and disappeared with some of her valuables while she was unconscious. Although she took out a warrant for his arrest, he was never captured for his, this crime. He was arrested in 1925 for stealing money and jewelry from another woman, Lena Fellows, who had accepted his proposal to elope before he robbed her and took off. In 1927, Powers responded to a Lonely Hearts ad from a divorcee named Luella Blanche Strother, who owned a neighborhood grocery store in Clarksburg, West Virginia, and the pair were quickly married. Powers moved into the apartment above the store with Luella and her sister and renamed the store Powers Grocery. Although he remained in this marriage, Powers continued to run his Lonely Hearts ad under the name of Cornelius O. Pearson through a number of matrimonial agencies, including the Cupid's Arrow and the American Friendship Society. The ad read, quote, Wealthy widower worth $150,000 with income from $100 to $3,000 per month. Civil engineer and a very fine-looking man of 38 writes, My business enterprises prevent me from making the acquaintance of the right kind of ladies. Am an elk and a mason. Own a beautiful tin-room brick home, completely furnished. My wife would have her own car and plenty of spending money. Would have nothing to do but enjoy herself, but she must be strictly a one-man's woman. I would not tolerate infidelity. It's a very convincing ad, I must say. <laughs> yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that how we met? Yes. Powers was working at the time as a vacuum salesman, and his new wife brought significantly more financial assets to the relationship, including a deserted farm in Quietdell, a small town just south of Clarksburg. A colleague of Powers at the Eureka Vacuum Company, Dudley C. Wade, mysteriously disappeared on May 10th of 1928. As a result of his disappearance, Powers was promoted to be a manager. When it was revealed that a number of vacuums were also missing, Powers claimed that Wade had sold them and stolen the money. Sounds suspicious to me. Yeah. 
The company took steps to recover the vacuums, including offering a reward and eventually getting a search warrant, which they used to search Powers' garage on Lynn Avenue in the Broad Oaks neighborhood of Clarksburg. In it, they found most of the missing vacuums with their serial numbers changed. Powers was arrested, but claimed that he had recovered the vacuums from Wade and was going to turn them in. Remarkably, this worked, and Powers was not only freed, but he was able to sue the company in order to receive the reward that they were offering for the stolen product. Oh, that sucks. Through his Lonely Heart ads, Powers was receiving between 10 and 20 letters per day. He was writing to more than 200 women and had struck up romantic relationships with dozens of women, including Asta Eicher of Park Ridge, Illinois, and Dorothy Limke of Northboro, Massachusetts. In his letters, Powers would borrow phrases from romance magazines and from Rudolph Valentino, and he was quite the smooth talker and writer. In one letter, he wrote, quote, I'm trying to find the one, the only one, that can make home a paradise, a place of rest, a haven of content where loved ones await, and to whom I can look forward with pleasure and anticipation. Who knows but what you may be that one. Very smooth talker. Oh, romantic. My heart's fluttering. That's, uh, that's pretty slick. Well, he also wrote specifically about his love and respect for women, stating, quote, Women's holy courage was revealed to me in my mother. I first saw it at my father's deathbed. My boyish heart was thus early impressed, sealed by the enduring strength of love. I shall never forget the profound seriousness of the right love of the one man for the one woman, and vice versa. In another letter, he wrote, quote, Women are the sweetest, purest, and most unselfish part of the human race. They sing the melodies of human life. Any man who has experienced a mother's affection, a wife's self-sacrificing love, or a sweetheart's affection knows that this is true. The content of many of his letters was nearly identical between his different targets. A Detroit woman named Edith Simpson, who had been in contact with Powers around the same time as Iker, was given a copy of a letter to Iker and said it was nearly identical to the one she had received. Speaking to officers about Powers, she stated, quote, He wrote so beautifully in his letters. His mind was so big and fine. I can't believe he would hurt an insect. One of the women he was corresponding with was 40-year-old Asta Buick Eicher. She was widowed eight years prior when her husband Heinrich died of cancer, and she dedicated herself to raising her three children alone. This was 14-year-old Greta, 12-year-old Harry, and 9-year-old Annabelle. Her husband had been a silversmith, and the pair moved from their Chicago apartment to Park Ridge, an artisan's collective just outside of the city. By the time she responded to Powers' ad in early 1931, her financial resources were dwindling, and despite still mourning her husband, the prospect of a wealthy husband who could take care of her and her children was likely very appealing. The pair continued to write back and forth for six months, over which time Iker was upfront about her children, and Powers did not at all seem to be put off by her having a family. He commented on pictures she sent of her family and even gave her son the nickname Buster. He said that her children will, quote, have the opportunities that they deserve. However, he did encourage Iker to keep their budding relationship to herself, saying that otherwise people may talk. In his last letter to her, he wrote, quote, Asta darling, when I come, I want to see you alone. Tell the children anything you like. I will come at night. Do not let the neighbors know. Leave all business arrangements to me. Your faithful Cornelius. That also sounds very suspicious to me. Yes. So all the while that he was communicating with Asta and the other women, Powers was working to soundproof a concrete basement below the garage on the Quiet Dell farm. 
Okay, speaking of suspicious, that just sounds really creepy. Yes. So there are a lot of conflicting descriptions of what this is. I heard that it was not just the basement. It was the entire garage that was concrete and windowless and soundproof. I've read... That there were two chambers. One had a pipe to pump in poisonous gas. And there was a window between the chambers so that he could sit in the other one and watch the people die from poisonous gas. Which is kind of weird because none of the five victims that we know of died of poisonous gas. There's been a lot of maybe like the game of telephone (laughs) with what exactly it was. I read that inside the garage there were kind of like cells, like concrete cells that locked on the outside to keep everyone in. Who knows? Often the garage is called the killing chamber. So Harry Powers and the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. (laughs) I've been sitting on that one for like two weeks. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But basically, he was planning something weird in this garage and the construction was happening as he was talking to these women. Shortly before Power's visit, Iker asked her longtime boarder and family friend, Charles O'Boyle, to move out of her home. In late June, I've seen June 20th or June 23rd, uh, so somewhere around then, Powers arrived at Iker's Park Ridge home. He stayed there for five days before leaving with Iker on a trip south to his home. She left her children in the care of their former family nurse, Elizabeth Abernathy. And five days later, Abernathy received a letter, supposedly from Iker, which stated that Mr. Pearson would be coming to take the children and bring them to start a new life with her. A separate letter was sent to her 14-year-old daughter, Greta, promising a new home, school, and dolls. Well, when Powers arrived, the first thing he did was send Greta to the bank with a note from Iker asking the bank teller to withdraw the entire balance from her bank account. The teller refused because the signature on the letter did not match the one associated with her account. Even if the teller had complied, the balance of the account was only $3.74, which Iker had not revealed to Powers, along with the fact that her house had been mortgaged twice. Powers quickly left with the children, not even staying long enough for Abernathy to pack any clothes for them. He returned to the house 10 days later, and with the help of a hired laborer, began moving the Iker's furniture to the garage. When neighbors asked who he was, he claimed to be Iker's fiance and showed them a paper supposedly signed by Iker which made him her agent. Neighbors still called the Park Ridge police, but when Chief Harold Johnson arrived, rather than question him, he presented Powers with an overdue mortgage bill for several hundred dollars. Powers promptly paid the bill with cash he had on hand. Before leaving, he put the now-empty house up for rent for $75 per month. At the same time that he was wooing and making plans with Iker, Powers was also corresponding with 50-year-old Dorothy Pressler Lemke, a divorcee living in Northborough, Massachusetts. He told her that he was living in Iowa and convinced her to move in with and marry him. After, of course, withdrawing $4,000 from her bank account. Limpke soon disappeared and her trunks, rather than being sent to Iowa, were sent to West Virginia in the care of Cornelius Pearson. Now is kind of the warning time. So obviously this crime involves killing of people and specifically killing of children. So if that is a sensitive topic, we understand and maybe fast forward a little bit. But this is also where the timeline gets a little bit sketchy. It was reported from several sources that Lemke arrived at the farm in Quietdale just one day after Iker. I'm not really sure how this would work, uh, especially if Powers was the one that drove her, which I would assume is the case because she obviously was not going to Iowa. Um, But in any case, sometime in late July or early August, Powers killed Lemke, Iker, and her three children. 
when he was interrogated by police about the murders, he said that he kept them all alive and locked in the garage for a period of time, starving them. He then took the Iker family to a room where he'd rigged up a single noose and one by one hung Asta and her daughters, Greta and Annabelle. At first, he permitted Harry to watch, but when Harry screamed, he beat the 12-year-old child to death with a claw hammer. Finally, he strangled Lemke to death with a belt and buried all of the bodies in a ditch on the Quiet Dell property. Powers told police that he derived sexual pleasure from watching his victims die, saying, quote, it beat any cat house I was ever in. <sighs> yeah. So meanwhile, in Park Ridge, the disappearance of the Iker family did not go unnoticed, particularly by their previous tenant, Charles O'Boyle. O'Boyle visited the Iker family residence in order to retrieve some tools, which he had left in the basement. And once again, he encountered Powers, known to him as Pearson, in the process of emptying out the house. He called the police, who came to question him, and Powers introduced himself as Cornelius O. Pearson of the Fairmont Hotel, Fairmont, West Virginia. And he produced a letter from Iker, which said that he paid her property taxes and mortgage and should clean out the house to prepare it for renters. He also told police that the Ikers moved to Colorado, but offered them no other details. Police were rightfully suspicious, and they reached out to Fairmont, West Virginia, but no one they spoke to had ever heard of Cornelius O. Pearson. Eventually, police searched the Ikers' home, and inside they found a cache of romantic letters which Powers had left behind that were sent from Iker to Pearson at a post office box in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Clarksburg police were contacted on August 27th, and Detective Carl Southern went to the post office where he discovered that Box 227, which was rented to Cornelius Pearson, actually belonged to one Harry Powers. Well, police waited at Powers' Broad Oaks home. When he finally did return, at around noon on the 27th, he had five letters in his pockets from five different women. Although there was no evidence at the time, he was placed immediately under arrest on suspicion of murdering the Ikers. Inside a trunk in Powers' home, they found letters and photos from more than 100 women, spanning a time frame of more than a decade. At first, Powers insisted to police that the Ikers had settled out west, but eventually admitted that he had brought them to West Virginia. Police learned of the garage, which Powers had been doing construction on, in the quiet Dell Farm. And when they searched it, they found jewelry belonging to Iker, along with hair, bloody clothes, a burned bank book, and a child's small bloody footprint. There was also a noose still hanging from the rafters above the trapdoor, which led to the basement rooms. A local 15-year-old boy tipped police off to the existence of a drainage ditch next to the garage, which had been recently filled in. As onlookers began to gather on the property, police uncovered the bodies of Asta at Iker and her three children wrapped in burlap sacks. The next day, they uncovered the body of Dorothy Limke with the belt still around her neck. Powers did not immediately confess, even after the murder garage and bodies were discovered. It took what was described as a lengthy and, quote, brutal interrogation, which left him with two black eyes and multiple bruises. When police asked how many people he'd killed, Powers replied with, quote, I don't know. When asked specifically about the origin of a number of items found in his possession and thought to belong to other victims, either of his swindling or of murder, Powers said, quote, You got me on five. What good would 50 more do? On September 20th, an angry mob of about 5,000 people gathered outside the Harrison County Jail, where Powers was being held, and demanded that he be handed over to them, but police were able to hold the mob off using tear gas. 
Police were afraid of Powers attempting to use insanity as a defense when he was brought to trial. So shortly after his arrest, they brought in alienist, which I love. It's basically the early form of like, you know, a behavioral science person. There's the TV show, The Alienist, coming out. Oh, yeah. 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 So this is apparently an alienist. Oh, cool. Uh, not to be confused with an alien. Yes. Um, so Dr. Edward Everett Mayer from the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, they had him evaluate Powers. Dr. Mayer reported that, quote, Powers is a psychopathic personality of the hypopituitary type, squat, pig-faced, paunchy, with weakened sexual powers. Ooh, burn. Dang. <laughs> he is not insane, but he has been a borderline case all his life. Powers is capable of knowing right from wrong. Powers' trial began on December 7th of 1931. Although he was indicted for all five murders, he was only tried for the murder of Dorothy Lemke due to there being significantly more evidence in her case, including photographs of her with powers found undeveloped in the trunk in his home and also multiple witnesses who had seen them together. Due to public interest in attending the trial, it was held in a specially constructed courtroom which could seat 12,000 people in the Moore's Opera House, a block away from the courthouse. Powers maintained his innocence, claiming through tears that although he had sought out relationships through Lonely Hearts ads to cope with his miserable marriage, he had not killed anybody. However, in addition to his confession to police, prison guards claimed that they heard Powers confess not only to the five murders in Quietdale, but also to the killing of Dudley Wade, um, his co-worker at that Eureka vacuum company. The trial lasted five days, and on December 11th, it took the jury less than two hours to return with a guilty verdict. On the following day, Harry Powers was sentenced to death by hanging. He was sent to the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville to await his execution, which was scheduled for the morning of March 18, 1932. The mood in Moundsville on the morning of his execution was reported to be festive, with a crowd gathering on the curb outside the penitentiary and cars lined up around the block. Powers was dressed in a black suit with pinstripes, a white-collared shirt, and what the Camden Courier Post described as a, quote, rather gaudy blue tie. I think I have one of those. The Clarksburg Telegram described his looks a bit more favorably, saying, quote, so neat was his appearance that he might have been the bridegroom at one of the many weddings he planned in his matrimonious bureau correspondence with scores of women all around the country. From the gallows in the death house on a remote corner of the prison grounds, Powers told 42 spectators, mostly officers and members of the press, that he was not guilty of the murder of Lemke, but that two mysterious men were responsible for her death. When the warden asked Powers if he had any final words, he responded, quote, no. At nine o'clock, the trapdoor below him was released, with three attendants pushing their buttons simultaneously so no one would know which had released it. He was pronounced dead 11 minutes later. Immediately after his execution, Dr. H.H. H. Hines of Clarksburg came forward with a 50,000-word confession of which Powers had written, admitting to all five murderers, and he announced that he would be selling the confession to the highest bidder in order to make up for the financial aid he'd given Powers to pay his legal fees when he was fighting against the death penalty. When Powers' body was removed from the death house, a letter was found on him addressed to the warden. In the letter, Powers continued to protest his innocence. He said that his trial was unfair due to it being held in an opera house, quote, where people go to be entertained. He also railed against the death penalty, saying that it, that it did nothing to dissuade people from committing murder. With regard to the claim that Powers' confession was coerced, Sheriff W.B. Grimm strongly denied it, saying that they simply presented Powers with the evidence and asked him to sign a written confession, which he agreed to after they removed language which implied his wife and sister were involved. Still, 
There are many pictures online with Powers looking rough after his interrogation by the police. So you might want to look those up and you can be the judge. Yeah, I'll post some of those on our Instagram because it seems pretty obvious to me that the dude was beaten up. Not that he didn't deserve it. Not that I don't think he's guilty, but it was a different time where I guess you could just beat people up. I guess. Yep. Speaking of Powers' wife, Luella and he did reconcile shortly before his death. Powers actually wrote a song while he was in prison and told reporters that he wanted the royalties of the song to go to her. Very romantic. Romantic until the end. She also wrote to Powers shortly before his execution, saying, quote, I am heartbroken and so distressed I can hardly live. Oh, I think it is terrible to give you up under such circumstances. Oh, Harry, dear, may God have mercy on you. And when you are through with the trials and troubles of this life, may you have a home in heaven where there is no sorrow. And some sweet day, I will come to see you, dear, and live with you forever. If I get your letter in time, I will write again, dear. If not... I shall say goodbye forever. Does anyone want to break it to her that after you kill children, there's another place you go to and it's it's not heaven? If you believe in that sort of thing. H-E double hockey sticks. (laughs) Yeah. But despite this, his wife actually never claimed his body from the prison and he was buried in the prison's potter's fields. I guess she didn't care that much. She's one of those sweet royalties from his song, which I was not able to find what song it is online. Oh, it's uh, that song, Love Me Do. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, the lawyer who represented Powers in his lawsuit against the vacuum cleaning company, Evan Allen Bartlett, would go on to write a book about this case published shortly after his trial called Love Murders of Harry F. Powers, Beware Such Bluebeards. And Powers became widely known as the Bluebeard Killer, the Modern Bluebeard, and probably most famously, the Bluebeard of Quiet Dell. The nickname Bluebeard has its origins in an old French folktale about a wealthy but exceedingly ugly nobleman who married a number of beautiful women that then went on to mysteriously disappear. So he marries the daughter of one of his neighbors against her will, and shortly after they marry, he leaves her alone in his mansion, telling her not to go into his underground chamber, which of course she does. In it, she finds the corpses of all his previous wives hanging from hooks. Bluebeard arrives home and finds out she's been in the chamber, but before he can kill her, she and her siblings kill him. She inherits his fortune, buries his dead wives, and remarries and lives happily ever after. So that is the story of the Bluebeard of Quiet Dell, Harry Powers. I do have a few little points to discuss. So as I mentioned when I was talking about his... uh, his chamber of secrets. It seems like a lot of his story has become embellished with time. I did the best I could picking out what seemed to make the most sense, what was in a lot of the resources that seemed to line up. There's a lot of weird stuff out there. So as I mentioned, there's that idea that he killed people with poisonous gas that he piped into his his killing chamber. So according to that story, how he was caught was that people smelt the gas on his farm and called the police like his neighbors smelt it so I feel like that whole story is kind of BS uh, because it it seems like it was reported in one place and then some other places just picked it up and rolled with it because it's it's kind of exciting and cool there's also stories that um, all of the children were beaten with hammers but more sources said that it was just the one Harry there's also the idea that he had many many victims you know, the the number that they throw out is 50. And I feel like that's only because he said, you no, know, 50, you have yeah, five. No. What 
what could 50 more do? It was just a poor turn of a phrase. I mean, he's like, I'm just casually throwing the number 50 out there. Yes. Not and the, everyone's what's... like, at least 50 victims. Yeah, he was a monster. I mean, he was um, a monster, but. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I personally tend to feel that he only had the five because he did seem to get caught very quickly. I mean, he killed them sometime in July and August and was caught by the end of August. They searched his farm extensively and found no other bodies. You know, the only thing they had to make them think there were more victims was um, kind of people's belongings. But, you know, he did swindle people out of their belongings without killing them for many years before he actually started killing people. I kind of feel like what he did was a progression. So he started with just stealing things from people and realized, you know, when they're alive and they could file police reports, you know, he's more likely to get caught, which, you know, he had been caught doing that before. So I wonder that's if they, kind of my assumption. Okay. I wonder if they took like the list of all the correspondence for the like Lonely Hearts Club, the women he was talking to and were like, who's alive here? Like, <laughs> you know, that seems like the natural thing to do. I didn't see anywhere that they did, but I also feel like you know, just because these women are, you know, widowed or divorced, obviously, as we see in this story, it doesn't mean they don't have meaningful connections that then miss them when they're gone, which is how he got caught. Yeah. Yeah. So also that darn 50,000 word confession. I don't know who was the highest bidder. I don't know what happened to it. I saw like little snippets of it online. So in one article, I saw you know that he said in his confession that he killed them all on August 1st. And I saw somewhere else that they said, oh, in his confession, he said that he spent like eight hours killing them. But I can't find like any sort of large chunk of it. And also, I'm not sure if that 50,000 word confession is different than the confession he gave to police. And is that different from the confession that the guards heard? So who really knows? I mean, keep an eye out on Antiques Roadshow, I guess, really. Well, and the the book, the Love Murders book, is very rare and costs like $400 to buy a copy of it. So unfortunately, I could not get my hands on that for uh, research purposes. I'd spend $14.95 on a Kindle edition of that. Would you spend $450 on a bound version of it, though? Hey, uh, we have a Patreon. Um, (laughs) Join us there and maybe we'll purchase uh, one of those copies. Kind of one last point is that there is an unsolved murder which is associated with him. The Grundy County, Illinois coroner, T.A. Hoganson, uh, thought that Powers had killed an unidentified woman in Morris, Illinois. The body of this woman was found wrapped in burlap, so burlap like the Iker's bodies, on the side of the highway. And a rooming housekeeper identified Powers as a man who rented a storage room from her. And the body was found uh, shortly after she complained to Powers about an odor coming from the room that he was renting. People thought he was associated with uh, unsolved murder in Washington, D.C., but it was literally like one sentence in an article. But it was a contemporary article, but I couldn't find anything else. So who knows? Maybe it is more than five. I still think it's less than 50. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would agree with you there. Yeah. Based on what we know. Yep. And I guess one question I thought I'd float it out there, considering how much he protested his innocence. Any chance that he's innocent, David? Probably not. Yeah, I agree. I just uh, think the this, this story leads down the path that he did kill uh, five people. Yeah. He sounds like he's awful. See, there's just way too much evidence. Yeah. So we are going to chat about the um, 1955 adaptation of this story called The Night of the Hunter. We'll catch you here in a minute. So sit tight. We'll be right back. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ben never told you he'd throw it in the river, did he? I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. I can feel myself getting awful mad. Here is all the passion and suspense, the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Wake up! Come on! Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run, hide in the staircase. Run quick! Ruby, shit! What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here, then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting you. The combined powers of Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton brought the King Mutiny Court Martial to Broadway. Now the screen receives that same creative, electrifying impact. The night of the hunter. And we're back. So we're going to jump into a discussion of the 1955 The Night of the Hunter. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing. Thus begins this tense, powerful screen chronicle depicting the timeless struggle of good and evil and the triumph of spirit over will. Charles Lawton brilliantly directs this powerful melodrama starring Robert Mitchum as a psychopathic preacher in relentless pursuit of two children who possess their dead father's stolen fortune. The Night of the Hunter was released in 1955, and it was directed by uh, Charles Lawton, who was a well-known actor. This is pretty interesting because he has a super impressive filmography. Um, A few that stood out to me include the 1935 Mutiny on the Bounty, and he played Captain Bly in that, and that's the Clark Gable version. The same year, Chelsea, I thought of you, he played Inspector Javert in Les Mis. Oh, does he have a, a beautiful singing voice? It's definitely not the musical version, though. Yeah. I love the song Stars. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. I'm sure even without any singing, he does a better job than Russell Crowe. <laughs> Which we all know. I have issues with that. Well, now you guys all know. David knows. Yes. Yes, I do. Well, in 1939, he played Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Is it the silent one? Uh, no, this is not the silent one. Oh. It's, uh, it, this is one of, that's one of those stories that I think there have been a lot of, of film versions in it. I I remember but, watching uh, the silent version when I was a kid. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I like that. Uh, he was in an updated version of Oscar Wilde's The Canterville Ghost in 1944. And uh, next year he played Captain Kidd. One of the things I thought was really cool um, is that he reprised the role of Captain Kidd in 1952 in Abbott and Costello Meet Captain Kidd. I don't think I've seen that one. I've seen a lot of Abbott and Costello, but I can't even imagine what a Captain Kidd is. It's good. No, it's good. He's he's a, a good pirate. I was imagining like Captain Underpants. Oh, like a, a captain oh, yeah. in a kid's book. He's a kid captain. A kid captain. Yeah. Yeah. Charles Lawton, 
Kid Captain. <laughs> uh, he acted alongside one of my favorite old-timey horror actors, Boris Karloff, and he has had many other roles. He's played a widower, a pastor, a tramp, as they used to say back in the day, uh, a scoundrel, I guess, maybe, perhaps. <laughs> okay. A scalawag. No, I don't know. <laughs> is that, is that, that's a word, right? And uh, he played Henry VIII. He's played admirals and just an endless list of credits. So rather go on and on, I just kind of wanted to get across the fact that he was a big time actor and directed Night of the Hunter. Oddly enough, his only feature film that he directed. However, he did direct many theatrical stage productions. The film, The Night of the Hunter, is based on the novel by Davis Grubb, and it features a, a screenplay by James Agee. Also, the cast of characters, the actors in this film are pretty um, well established. I'm just going to kind of go into the the two sort of leading roles and, and a bit of their background. The lead, Harry Powell, is played by Robert Mitchum. You know, some of his roles include Out of the Past in 1947, Cape Fear in 1962, the original, and uh, he was nominated for an Academy Award in the story of G.I. Joe in 1945, which not the G.I. Joe dolls. If you're more into um, 70s, 80s, and 90s films, and you may recognize his name, he is in, well, one of my my favorites and one of my favorite Christmas movies. Um, he plays Bill Murray's boss in Scrooged. The one that wants programming for cats and dogs. Yes, yes. Uh, David showed me that clip yesterday, and I was like, do you recognize him? And it took me a minute. I was like, oh my gosh, yep. Yeah. Very different role than his role in Night of the Hunter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he uh, did a bunch of TV work. He was in The Winds of War. He was in War and Remembrance in the late 80s. He was in The North and the South which with Patrick Swayze. And also in, it was like a late 80s miniseries called Brotherhood of the Rose with Connie Selica. So if any of those names ring a bell, um, you probably already know Robert Mitchum. But if you don't and you see Scrooge, just remember he's he's the boss. Yeah. And um, I feel like a lot of people know him from this role specifically because it is quite the role it is quite the role one thing that was pretty cool is uh my dad he loves film noir and he likes you know movies of this era he's pretty much anything that's in black and white he's into i think but when we started the podcast you know i think the um the aspect of true crime and film noir really jumped out at him so a lot of the time when he's watching older movies he'll you know point out to us that you know there's this the film noir section on amc or or whatever well there's a list of 18 film noir films that he is in. Yeah, um, it's on Ranker.com, and I will include that in the show notes. Uh, getting back to our other lead, Willa Harper. She's played by Shelley Winters, and some of her roles include A Double Life, A Place in the Sun. She was in the 1959 The Diary of Anne Frank and the 1962 Lolita. She was in A Patch of Blue and the 1972 The Poseidon Adventure, and as well as um, 66 Alfie. She had, she does have a big role in Poseidon Adventure. That's one like I really remember her from. Playing the two kids, uh, John Harper and Pearl. Uh, John is played by Billy Chapin, and Pearl is played by Sally Jane Bruce, who we looked her up, and she this was her only film role. Ben, the father, is played by Peter Graves, and I knew him. I was like, oh, yeah, I know Peter Graves. I didn't realize it was him in the movie, but he is in Airplane. He's in the original Mr. Impossible. 
Yeah. So I thought that was cool. It's a very small role in this movie. He's in like the next yeah, like the three opening, scenes. Yeah, one yeah. of the early scenes. Um, Uncle Bertie's played by James Gleason. Rachel Cooper, uh, she's played by... I loved her character. We'll get into her when we when we do a walkthrough of the film. Played by Lillian Gish. You should say she's a very famous silent film star. And it's amazing if you look up her name, The like those beautiful like silent film star headshots. She's like adorable. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. yeah, It's really cool. Um, So look up Lillian Gish. And then there's kind of an interesting and cute but funny uh, older couple, uh, Icy and Walt Spoon. And Icy is played by Evelyn Varden. And Walt is played by Don Beto. All right. So now that we've walked through the cast, it is uh, time for just a little bit of, well, hang on. Actually, I have some taglines for you, Chelsea. (gasps) Taglines, my favorite. Yeah, there's only three. Oh. Uh, All right. The first one is the scenes, the story, the stars, but above all else, the suspense. That's kind of lame. I think the same person wrote this one. I think you'll know why here in a second. The wedding night, the anticipation, the kiss, the knife, but above all, the suspense. (laughs) What? Okay, then. And this one I feel like is just a description of the poster, but it it says... um, the hands of Robert Mitchum in The Night of the Hunter. That might have been a caption for a photo, though. I don't know. Somehow that's still the best tagline, though. <laughs> I thought it was first comes the love, then comes the hate, then comes the... What did murder. I think? <laughs> the murder. I like that. First comes the love, then comes the hate, then comes the murder. Yeah. There. New tagline for you. Boom. Boom. Get on it. Criter- oh, there's already criterion addition to this, I do believe. One of the big elements of the story is this uh, $10,000 that's hidden away. And Chelsea, you look this up and it was equivalent to around $170,000 in today's uh, adjusted for inflation. Yeah, definitely worth murdering a few widows for, right? <laughs> no, no. No? No, probably not. So this movie actually did not do well at all at the box office and was savaged by critics wow really yeah there's like a couple of things that i read that may have contributed to why it did not do well and there's an article in the telegraph um called night of the hunter a masterpiece of american cinema in it they say quote why did it fail commercially and critically the most persuasive reason is that it was painfully out of step with its times mid-50s america was a prosperous expansionist country hugely upbeat and optimistic about its future. This twisted little morality tale that wasn't even in color offered a dark side of humanity that people didn't care to consider, and it hearkened back to an era of poverty and austerity that most Americans wanted to put firmly behind them. Interesting. Did they mention anything specifically about the idea of a preacher being a villain? Was that kind of taboo in the 50s you think no i I came across nothing that really you know so it's just the fact that it was set during the great depression yeah it was a little bit of a downer okay people were like fine have the preacher be the villain whatever just like you know make it happier that's a interesting stance yep yeah um well the lead roles rather than approach gary cooper and betty grable and they turned it down so oftentimes you know i've read how directors they say never work with animals and never work with children apparently uh the director charles lawton did uh work well with the actor that played john but did not get along with the actor that played pearl sally jane bruce he shouted at her and in fact there was often times where he would let the camera continue to roll after they'd finished uh, filming and that would catch her reacting to lawton And those outtakes were used in the final edit as reaction shots to the preacher's character. So it's like when she's crying and terrifying. Oh, my God. Terrified, yeah. Man. 
again, that's kind of disturbing to think about. It's weird, the idea of him not getting along with her because she's a very young child. She's like a five-year-old child. I feel like getting along requires higher levels of cognitive thinking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I wanted to mention one review before we dive into the movie. Maybe you'll like this. The sequence where Powell is um, hunting down the children and he's riding a horse uh, off in the distance. It was actually a little person riding a pony and was filmed in a false perspective. Are you sure it wasn't a miniature horse? No, miniature horses have a completely different ratio, but I love them. Yeah. That's true. But I thought that was an interesting trick. There are a lot of camera tricks that happen in this film because I think there's moments where it looks like it's filmed outside on location and others where it's very um, stylized and you can kind of tell it's shot on a stage. But I, I kind of like that aesthetic of it. Robert Mitchum was actually really, really eager to play the role of a preacher. And when he auditioned for the role, um, there was a moment that impressed uh, Lawton, the director. And that was when Lawton described the character as a diabolical shit. And Mitchum promptly answered, present. That's perfect. I would absolutely describe his character in this movie as a diabolical shit. Yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfect description. Yep. So I do want to quote a critical review that was published in The New Yorker is from the great Pauline Keel. And she's considered probably one of the greatest film critics of all time. So she says, quote, despite its peculiar overtones of humor, this is one of the most frightening movies ever made. And truly frightening movies become classics of kind. Robert Mitchum is the murderous, sex-obsessed, hymn-singing soul-saver with hypnotic powers and his terrified new wife, played by Shelley Winters, who has a boy and a little girl from an earlier marriage, becomes his fervent disciple. He is something of a Pied Piper in reverse. Adults trust him. Children try to escape. The two kids' flight from the madman is a mysterious dreamlike episode, a deliberately artistic suspense fantasy broken by the appearance of a Christian variety of fairy godmother played by Lillian Gish. The adaptation of David Gribb's novel was James Agee's last film work, and the shadowy horror fable was the first and only movie directed by Charles Lawton. It was a total financial disaster, and he never got a chance to direct again. So it kind of ends on a, on a sad note, but uh, uh, I thought that was a, a great kind of um, commentary on the movie itself. Yeah, absolutely. I do feel like it's kind of hard to tell by the tone of that. So she liked it? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think she did. All right. So Chelsea, let's just talk about talk about your thoughts on the movie. What did you think? I loved it. I feel like kind of actually building off of that review, it is weird and frightening. And I really loved it. Um, I thought it was uh, beautifully shot. I'm kind of bummed that due to its critical reception uh, Charles Lawton did not get to direct again because I feel like um, some of that imagery that really stands out to me just now thinking about it actually the scene right before Powell kills Shelley Winter's character oh spoiler alert but uh, that scene in the bedroom it's like the room has this like steepled ceiling and the lighting is very dramatic the like highlights are really bright and the shadows are really dark and you know you kind of get that feeling i feel like you know it it was not super obvious that this would be the scene where he does it i feel like the whole movie you know he's going to to kill her because that's what he does he's introduced in the beginning of the movie you know talking to himself about how he kills widows for money and he says like he's killed i think 12 or something yeah (laughs) um and uh it's just somehow still very shocking um that scene you know the scene where he is chasing the children up the basement stairs and he almost seems like like a 
classic universal monster like Dracula the way his hands are up just Robert Mitchum is amazing as an actor it's funny I think that when we posted that we were doing this movie uh, most of the feedback we got was specifically about his character and you know he's not just terrifying he's like weirdly appealing I think that He's very suave. You know, his singing voice is like incredible. (laughs) Um, And he really, you can, I think because of that, you can kind of understand how Shelley Winters' character kind of falls under his spell. And you can see it from her perspective. You could also see it from the children's perspective because they know enough and you know enough as the audience to know that this is a very dangerous man. Yeah, it's, it's just, it. It's really incredible. I think my, when I talked to my mom about it and I asked her you know, what was so scary about it and she talked about Robert Mitchum's character being kind of relentless in his pursuit of the children and I think going along with the review talking about that part of the movie being almost like dreamlike. Well, to me, it's like nightmare-like <laughs> um, more so because you know, by all accounts, these children should be able to escape him and yet he can track them down and hunt them down and it's... Um, you know, my mom, yeah, my mom said it's like in the Terminator. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty similar. And I think that that you know, this movie coming out in 1955, kind of predating the like slasher movies that we see a lot of, starting in what like the late 70s. Um, you know, it it kind of feels maybe like it's following that template where just out of nowhere he's back, he's coming, and he's singing a very creepy song. Yep, that's true. So what did you think, David? I really love this movie. I'd never seen it, and I thought that uh, it, it surprised me in a lot of ways. I wasn't familiar with the case. I, I Somehow, I, I didn't. I had no idea. I had no idea this movie really existed. But then when I saw the um, the picture of Robert Mitchum with the love-hate tattoos on his hands, which become a really important part of the story, I mean, you're right, that like sort of classic monster aspect of it really shows itself in the movie. It's... It, this this is a is a horror movie. It's not just like a a true crime like film or or a film noir or anything like that. I think the the dream aspect um, of it really helps create that mood. The unrelenting villainous pastor character uh, that Robert Mitchum plays, and these two innocent kids. It feels sort of like um, a very dark fairy tale, especially once the kids escaped. Like you said, it the, there's like a shift in style that feels natural but it also gives it this dreamlike quality that i really like and it does it does in fact just like pauline keel says there is sort of a like a fairy godmother character that was the highlight of the movie for me like as soon as rachel cooper shows up her character i was just really rooting for the whole movie i mean it was it was exciting i really loved her a lot it's true i feel like you know, it you you're obviously rooting for the kids from the beginning, but the way Robert Mitchum's character kind of cast the spell over adults in this movie, it was really refreshing when they introduced her character as like clearly an adult who, you know, is strong and protective of the children and will take no crap. No crap will be taken by this woman. It's, yeah. It's awesome. Um, the other thing too that that you commented on while we were watching this was the um, the there are large amounts of the movie that are absent of a soundtrack. There is singing at times, and there is sort of an orchestra score that weaves in and out of the movie. But but it allows like it there are just large amounts of it where it's just like dialogue and uh, sound effects and stuff. 
and I thought that was pretty cool. So yeah, loved it. The black and white is beautiful. I think there's a there's a reason why this got a Criterion Collection um, edition. I've seen it is now pretty highly regarded. It's in a lot of top 200 films of all time or whatever. Um, and Harry Powell is in a lot of uh, like greatest villain lists, and I absolutely see why. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. Well, let's just dive in. You want to spoil this movie away? Yes, let us spoil. So it starts off a little, a little interesting. I think when we were talking about um, uh, the uh, murder in the Red Barn, how it starts off almost like a stage play. This movie also is very stylistic. It starts off where they kind of it's some isolated, like floating heads of children, and they're just kind of talking for like just a brief amount of time yeah and it's the it's also the floating head of actually uh rachel cooper oh She's right like telling a story to these children i need to go and watch it again to see i think it's the three girls that we see later on but oh um, that are she's, her she's care, telling yeah. the story basically of the like sheep and or the the sheep and wolf's clothing the, oh my gosh <laughs> that'd be a surprise <laughs> the the wolf in sheep's clothing yeah um and like the beware of false prophets which is you know i think a very nice way to start the movie it was really shocking though because it does go straight from that to these children playing and finding a, a dead body in a barn yeah they only see, show the yeah. the legs wearing high heels so you know it's like a, a woman's body yeah um, yeah that's you know. pretty disturbing um and then they just you just cut to powell he's, yep. he's just driving, driving and, his car yeah right in his car saying preacherly things and talking to god talking to god about how he's lost count of the number of widows he's murdered and he's like was it was it 11 was it 12 and that was something else like getting that out of the way so quickly wow yeah and spoiler alert it ends up during the trial being like 20 something so he yeah. really has lost count he does yeah um so he ends up at a nightclub and uh you see his uh his tattoos they like focus on them he has the words hate on one hand on his uh his well, his knuckles, I guess, and then love on the other. Yes, and um, his hate hand starts getting a little bit antsy. So you're thinking, you know, maybe he's judging the people who are there or the dancer for doing a, a sexy dance, which like yeah. he's also there watching this dancer. So I don't know who he thinks he is to be to be judging, but he, oh, he's he's judging, though. <laughs> he is judging away. His little hate hand says, oh, it's so Wearing much sexy that it, like, clothing. Yeah, God sexy does clothing. not approve. Yeah, and then he triggers. Well, he has a switchblade yes. throughout the entire movie, and it's kind of an amazing weapon of choice. And it just, it just, he pops out of his pocket. Like, yes, he gets it cuts real, through his pocket. He got uh, real excited after he puts his hate hand in his pocket. Yeah, yeah. His, his um, hate hand got really excited. But he gets busted. So he does. He actually Cop gets busted for vehicle theft. He does very similarly to uh, Harry Powers. There. Yeah, it was like a simple seemingly simple crime where automatically the both i guess lead and antagonist of the film is put into prison for 30 days so then we cut to the kids so we meet john and pearl and they're two cute kids and they you know seem to have a loving father ben yes he pulls up and he comes out of the car and he's bleeding and basically you know something's wrong he um he grabs uh he grabs john yeah and he, well he, he tells the he tells the kids like you need to keep a secret yes no matter what happens you yes need to no keep matter what secret. happens don't tell your mother you need to keep this a secret and it's the fact that he has a lot of money it's the fact that he stole a lot of money yes <laughs> um, and as it turns out um killed killed two people in the process of 
robbing this bank. So yep. he has $10,000 and uh, they don't initially show where it's hidden. But by the time the police get there, the money is hidden. And it is, yes. yes. And Ben has a gun. And so, I mean, I thought it was maybe going to be like a shootout. But they, you know, they capture him and he, the, they get the weapon away from him. And then they cart him off uh, to prison. Yes. And you see, um, actually, it's a very similar shot to where you see Powell being sentenced, but it is Ben Harper being sentenced and he's sentenced to death by hanging for the the murders during this bank robbery. Yep. And I thought the the next scene where they cut to the interior of the prison and, uh, you know, it's Ben, he's in his bunk. And then Robert Mitchum just drops down sort of upside down. And, uh, you know, he, he knows what happened. He knows what happened. He knows what he's in there yeah. for. So he's actually listening to Ben talk to himself yeah. in his sleep. And he's like trying to get Ben while he's sleeping to say where the money is hidden. Yeah. Um, but then Ben wakes up and he refuses. Um, and he kind of, you know, does reveal his motivations about, um, you know, this being the Great Depression and he doesn't want to, you know, see his children starve the way he's seen other children um, starving during this time. So it's, you know, it's it's sad. It is. He yeah. did still kill two people, though. He did. Yeah. Um, I read that. I guess Robert Mitchum came up with the idea to kind of drop down and hang from his bunk kind of a little bit upside down and, and kind of do that little like trick try to trick him oh my gosh yeah he's so creepy yeah he is um all right so (laughs) yeah so we we kind of established the fact that now obviously powell knows what we know as an audience um which i thought was cool Uh, yes it makes it ten thousand dollars and it's somewhere you know that's uh he he thinks maybe the wife knows where it is or the kids know where it is someone in the family has this ten thousand dollars is what at least powell thinks right yep and then um well so we just kind of there's just kind of a hard cut to um one of the guards at home uh with his wife and and kids talking about he's talking about ben because he was one of the i believe the arresting officers or um and so so you get a little bit of like home life and and this kind of comes to play at the end of the movie as well um because i think like he is involved with like the sentencing of ben or the hanging or whatever because uh but before we get to that there there are a lot of kind of cuts back and forth because i think there's a lot of like locations to cover and you're kind of before all everyone comes together they're like yeah all of their lives separately so we cut back to the school and it's just like the kids there's kids and they're singing like uh, about hanging and they're singing like hang hung hang hung hang yeah. hang hung like yeah. about the various uh forms of the word hang yeah which is you know sad because you know john and pearl are kind of privy to what's going on so you know their dad is going to be executed um and the uh the kids are walking down the street then in town a woman comes out of a shop actually john is looking in the shop window looking at a a clock which will kind of come into play later but the woman steps out and you know is asking the kids if they know anything about the money that their dad stole and john's like nope and keeps on walking so word is out that there is some hidden money yes Um, that's the macguffin of the film Which I thought is a good MacGuffin. It's a very, very interesting one. It uh, really propels the movie forward. Um, But then uh, while they're singing the hanging song, um, Pearl actually starts singing it like on their last shot where they're nearly home. And John kind of looks at her like, don't sing that song. Yeah, that's (laughs) that's not cool. That's our daddy. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was really sad. 
Yeah. And then we meet Willa, the mom, and she's working at like a soda shop with, um, I mentioned when I was talking about the cast, the, there's like an older couple and uh, the woman, Icy, she works with her. Icy Spoon is just a very strange name. It is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is. Especially working at like a ice cream parlor slash soda shop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Icy Spoon should be the name of the shop. But uh, so Icy is talking to Willa about how she needs to find herself a new man which like already <laughs> i feel like it's like the same day that ben is hung i could not figure out the timeline because it seemed like the preacher was not sentenced to that much time in prison and you'd think to carry out a hanging sentence you know even in the 30s when it was a lot faster it was still a matter of like a couple of months so maybe it took him a while to get from the prison to like find his family or whatever because i mean the the preacher is bound for this man's family and I guess Ben is already dead at this point because, yeah, Icy's like, you got to get yourself a man to take care of your kids. You can't raise kids on your own because it's 1931 or whatever. But as she's having this conversation, it's cutting to this, like, very ominous, like, train approaching with, uh, like, creepy music. So we all know who's on that train. That's the Powell train. That's the Powell train. That is Powell. He's coming. Yes. He's coming for that money. Yep. He's, uh, he's he's coming to for Willa. Yes. So uh, it then cuts to the kids at home. Uh, John is telling Pearl a story. She asks for a bedtime story and he tells basically their own story, except it's like a kingdom where the king goes away and leaves, I guess, riches for the son and they have to hide it and keep it a secret. And then as he's getting to the part where, uh, you know, the like enemies arrive at the castle, suddenly this like uh, shadow appears in the window of like the outline of the like kind of a man wearing a large brimmed hat oh so scary it, yeah. it was like uh when in our nightmare on elm street episode we talked about uh west craven having a similar encounter where there was a strange man outside of their window like under the street light and that's what it turns out to be we like cut Maybe to outside robert powell. And, yeah robert yeah. powell <laughs> harry powell harry, yeah. mitchum harry mitchum <laughs> Yeah, that was, that's really scary. I mean, yeah. he's like he's a, a a very bad person. Then we uh cut to Uncle Bernie. Uncle Bernie, I I did I did like his character. I liked some to parts an of his character. Yeah, no, I I liked his introduction and I thought maybe he was going to be like a good powerful figure for John and he ends up really not not being yeah that. he ends up making certain decisions that i cannot get behind yes uh, but, but yeah but yeah. he's you know he's hanging out with john gives him a coffee <laughs> yeah he gives a little kid coffee yeah um, but you know it's a little kid during the great depression i feel like uh different times it's so his stomach would be full so that he wouldn't cry for food oh yeah but yeah so he, he hangs out for a little bit and then when he leaves you know he goes by the the soda shop where his mom works and his mom is there with uh the spoons and little pearl and harry powell yes harry powell um and he is uh describing how he knows their father how he knows ben liar liar pants on fire yeah he says he just left the prison he was basically saying that he was employed there and resigned Yes, he resigned because he was so upset after their father was put to death and he was so worried about the family. So he wanted to come and give them a message and uh, put the moves on his widow. Yep. <laughs> as uh, you do. As you do. As slinker stinkers do. Icy is making fudge. 
right? At the shop? Yes, yes. Icy is making fudge for a community picnic that he she very much wants Powell to stay for. And Powell's kind of like, I like fudge. Can I have some? And she's like, no fudge unless you come to the picnic. Yes. And it's also where he um, tells the story of his tattoos, yes. uh, where he talks about, you know, them representing kind of the, I don't know if you want to say the dichotomy of God or it's, you know, the struggle between good and evil is the struggle between love and hate and then does this weird pantomime of like arm wrestling where he intertwines his two fingers and says oh oh it looks like hate's winning oh hate's winning oh wait no here comes love 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 wins oh the end it's a great scene I, I, it's a great scene yeah, great uh good job acting on robert mitchum's part and it's very creepy yeah <laughs> i mean because it's we already know straight up that he is a villain and yes. he's a murderer Yes, so he's, like, in, he's introduced talking about killing women. There's not a question, which I I kind of appreciate that about it. I don't think it, you know, detracts by having it be some sort of surprise that he, you know, is a serial killer targeting these lonely women. Yeah. I don't know. I think the structure of the movie, it, it works well with it. So the picnic is a good opportunity to um, pal to get Willa alone. Um, there's like, you know, there's like a lot of... I guess a little bit of conflict with John and him, I guess probably his little warning signs are going up in his head. Icy is able to kind of bring him over to the table and and then let Powell go off to Willow, who's kind of sitting off by herself, who was previously talking to John. <laughs> so it's like... It is hard. I feel like you do need to consider that when this movie is supposed to take place in the 1930s was a very different time. And it would have been incredibly hard for this woman to raise two children on her own. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of don't blame her when the opportunity presented itself. Plus, Powell is incredibly charming. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, yeah, unfortunately, she does kind of fall for it. And shortly after that, they're uh, off to the chapel. Powell is already starting to try to trick John into revealing where the money is. Because he says, like, right up front that, you know, your father told me, you know, your daddy told me that the money was tied to a rock and dumped into the river. Yes. And, and he wants to see his reaction. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you could tell Willa immediately believes him. So he knows that, you know, Willa does not know where the money is. But he's immediately suspicious of the children and John in particular. Uh, Pearl kind of actually falls for Powell's charm. She really likes him right off the bat but john obviously does not no he's also he's older he is yeah 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 i feel like he maybe has like that little tough kid feeling of responsibility because his dad told him you know kind of the man of the household yeah i mean he's a little boy but (laughs) the little boy of the household yep exactly powell kind of uses the fact that he's going to marry john's mom as a threat because he just flat out like we're going to get married boy (laughs) Yep. I'm going to marry your mama. And uh, John tells him, you'll never be my real dad. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Just like that. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then even Pearl, you said, you know, Pearl likes him. And I think she says something along the lines of, I love Mr. Powell lots and lots, John. Yep. And she wants to tell him where the money is because both children know where the money is. Um, But John is insisting that, you know, she not tell him and honor their promise to their father. Then I think they kind of cut to the wedding night, right? Yes. This... This scene was very kind of sad and disturbing to me because you, know, you see Willa kind of feeling excited and elated. It's like the wedding night and she has on her little like 
I mean, it, it covers absolutely everything, but it's like a, a nightdress and she's like fixing herself up in the mirror and kind of goes into the bedroom and like, you know, wants her new husband to look at her and appreciate her. And he refuses to. And at first he says he's praying and then he gets um, incredibly angry with her about, you know, her basically being like some sort of harlot for expecting anything to happen on their wedding night. Um, and basically says that he is married he married her only to like take care of the children and that the fact that she was even expecting anything to happen is just so repulsive um and you know she just feels awful and after that i think really devotes herself to this idea of him as a religious figure which is such crap <laughs> Yeah, Just he such crap. He is incredibly cruel in that moment. We've seen his power over people already and like you're right though. Um there is a change in will after that. Yes. Then um John's fishing with Uncle Bernie. But Bernie, you know, this is when I was like, oh, okay, maybe Bernie's still okay. I was still like kind of on, on team, team Uncle Bernie. And he's, he tells John that if he's ever in trouble to just come, come a running, come running, John, you can come running. So John's like, okay, all right. I can yeah. do that. Then, you know, we cut to like this nice little scene between John and Uncle Bernie. And then it's this hellfire and brimstone scene with Willa where she's like testifying. Yeah, she's she's testifying with Powell there and she's saying that, you know, it's all her fault that her husband did what he did and got himself executed because, you know, she wanted clothes and perfume and that's why he stole the money. Even though we see him say specifically he stole the money to take care of the kids. So it's like, I don't think that she should be blaming herself, but this is what, you know, Powell has done to her. And it, yeah, it's just very, very weird. Um, but she she tells everyone in that moment that the they took the money and tied it to a rock and threw it in the river. So now, you know, everyone thinks that's that that's where the money is yeah and then you know this whole like the 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 money macguffin shows it reveals yes, itself in the next scene where it reveals itself we cut to pearl and she's outside and she has the doll kind of un so uh open i don't think we mentioned yeah she oh. has a she has a doll in oh, this right. movie yes. that she carries around with her everywhere yep yeah um the very first scene was you know her playing with this doll and yeah the money is in the doll yeah the money is in spoiler the doll. alert a spoiler alert i know i was like oh yeah that's the actual macguffin itself is the doll um, yeah yeah um and she's just like there's like bills everywhere and then she's cutting out little paper dolls out of some of the the bills which i thought that powell would find that but when he comes out and calls them inside um they do have enough money uh, enough money enough time to put the money back in the doll yeah well John comes up and, and sees Pearl doing this and Pearl's like, you're going to get awful mad, John. I did a sin. And uh, hey, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says you can't cut paper dolls out of money yeah. or else we're all sinners. Right. <laughs> no. Um, and, you know, that that was a really tense moment, though, because like John is sort of the two kids are kind of blocking him from his line of sight to see what they're doing and he's he kind of kind of like goes out the front door and then starts walking to them as as john's like stuffing the doll full of the bills and gets it gets everything you know stuff just in time um and i thought that was great um but then being hit the disciplinarian (laughs) powell's like you know there's there's to be no secrets between you and me i think he's he starts to to smell the money yeah, yeah, and he he asks John where the money is. And you know, once he asks that, John then knows that Ben never told him that he threw the money in the river. So he kind of reveals himself to the children in this scene even though they did or at least John did have his suspicions. Yeah. But he gets real real mad in this scene. It's well, 
Pearl wants to tell him and John is preventing it. John actually throws a hairbrush at Powell to um, stop Pearl from saying where the money is. And then he ends up taking Pearl downstairs to the parlor and um, getting extremely angry. And um, he shouts at her, uh, was it, where's the money, you little wretch, or I'll tear your arm off? And um, actually, Willa is outside and she hears this. So, yeah, she over. Yeah, she yeah. overhears it. She wasn't like even eavesdropping. It just you just see her outside. But yeah, um, so now she knows. Um, like she had thought John was lying when he told her that Powell was like asking where the money is and all that stuff. Uh, and now she knows that he really did just marry her and join the family to try to get this this ten thousand dollars willa is so naive that like even in this scene which is the scene actually i was talking about earlier where it's like moments before he's going to kill her and like she's laying down in bed and she says you know even if you just married me for that money i still think that it was you know god's hand that god put us together in this situation and it's all part of god's plan and he like slaps her (laughs) and then he like she's laying in bed he's kind of the opposite side of the room in front of this window and you kind of like see him it feels like a transformation it's like yeah uh you know going from his usual diabolical shit self to uh something else entirely and he takes out the switchblade and you don't really see it but it turns out he like cut her throat and killed her and then it cuts to the children hearing like what turns out to be a a car starting up and like john wakes up he gets out of bed then he gets back in bed and then it's the following morning and uh powell goes to the ice cream shop and says willa took off with the car Yep. yep she ran away she abandoned him with her children and this is like the fakest story since fake went to fake town like it's oh just like and his crying is the fakest crying in fake town yeah is that next door to flavor town i think so yeah just watching him weave his lies is just ah, it's awful we're like screaming at the tv at this point <laughs> we then um see uncle bernie this is when i think when what you mentioned when you're like oh that uncle bernie it this, does it does make me mad this part this is like the worst because uncle bernie just is a giant coward he's what you see is it's just a a, a hard cut to the car underwater with Willa with her throat cut. And she's tied to the seat. Yeah. And there's like seaweed kind of waving in slow motion. Her hair is kind of drifting in it's the water. It's a beautiful, really disturbing, but beautiful shot. Um, but she is in shallow water. It's Yeah. Shallow enough water where you see kind of a hook from a fishing rod, like hook part of the car. But then they immediately like pull out and it's just like crystal clear water. And like Uncle Bernie can see her in the car. Yes. He can um, see that her throat is cut. Yeah. It's very clear. And I feel like maybe you're not a lot of people maybe go out on the water. It does seem like it's maybe kind of remote or maybe Powell didn't know that the water was so shallow there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's crystal clear. And, and Bernie, of course, decides to do absolutely nothing. He has like a monologue inside his houseboat where he's like. He's talking to a picture of his deceased wife and drinking and saying that they would pin it on him which makes absolutely no sense it makes no sense and then he says something particularly gruesome i thought that kind of described what he saw and it's it's something along the lines of that like her throat was slit and it looked like she had a second mouth yeah oh and that was just oh it's just i felt really awful and just like i mean what happened it was just terrible yeah so um so after that it cuts back to the house 
the children are actually hiding in the basement um, and Powell comes home and he's looking around for them and he realizes that they're in the basement and he's, you know, doing his thing where he gives, give you to the count of three to come up and then Icy Spoon. <laughs> I just can't <laughs> say that name without laughing. Yeah. I don't know how that didn't click to me while we were watching the movie that that was her name. But, yeah, uh, yeah. But she comes to the house and she like brings food for them and she's able to get the children to come upstairs so after she leaves powell has this whole spread of food and the children are hungry there's like fried chicken and all of this stuff um and of course he's refusing to let the children eat until they tell him where the money is yep yep and then uh this is when he's kind of like oh come over here pearl and she's like he pulls out the switchblade like right next to her yeah and it's terrifying yes yes and she's scared yeah. And John's mad. And John just blurts out, <laughs> he comes up with a great lie. I mean, kind of great. Uh, a lie that is going to hopefully, at least if I were a little kid, I would have maybe done the same thing. It's in the basement underneath the stones. Yep. And it'd be like, yeah, go down in the basement. We're not going to like push downstairs and lock the door and run away. Yeah. So he, uh, you know, Powell is not dumb. He makes the children go down to the basement first. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, John points out the corner. He's like, it's under the rock over there. And Powell goes over there and he brushes off the floor. And he's like, the floor is concrete, you little jerk. (laughs) He's like, I know you're lying. There are no stones for it to be under. But the spot that he points to is actually underneath a shelf of glass jars. So John breaks the shelf. The jars come down on his head and they're able to run upstairs uh this is the scene i was talking about where he's like so close behind them on the stairs but uh, they're far enough ahead that um they actually managed to slam the door as he has his fingers in so right on his uh knuckle tattoo and then they close the door and they lock it and they run outside and then the whole movie becomes like a chase scene yes yes and this is the part where it's you know that relentlessness of powell's character kind of showing up when you really think he should not be able to but he can. yeah yeah because yeah. he is the terminator yep well He'll and also yeah also an important thing too is while they're downstairs um that's when i think pearl yells yells out that the money's in the doll oh yes yes um so after you know he sees that the floor is concrete uh he you know has the knife out and is basically going to it seems maybe kill one of them or something and then yeah pearl says that the yep so so now he knows that they're gone and they have the money on them you know it's not hidden somewhere it's actually on their person their mother's dead there's a villain after them they're on the run uncle bernie's doing nothing and yeah they first he goes to uncle bernie and uncle bernie like drank so much that he's just passed out and completely useless thanks uncle bernie <laughs> yeah thanks a lot but the kids uh do end up running to the river and yes. like they're so I the little it was really dinghy great. that uncle bernie uh owns that he was using for fishing they get in it and of course um this is also when powell shows up again and he's like fighting his way through the brush to get down to the shore but like just in the nick of time they manage to get the boat out onto the water far enough that powell can't follow them yeah and he just he gets in the water and he just screams Screams. oh my god terrifying yep Yep. Uh, yeah those sorts of moments where that uh facade his like smooth talking preacher facade slips it's just like oh my god it's like some ted bundy shit well we know that uh because powell is as devious as he is he takes the time to create a scenario that would explain why the kids are gone and why he's gone for the icing walt 
And yeah. that's that they're doing some traveling with the kids and he needs a break since Willa ran away. Yep. So they're going to his family's farm to uh, spend some time, I guess, with his like parents or whatever. And, and then, then Walt casually mentions something about some neighbors or whatever are there. Somebody stole their horse. Well, not only that, it's like he killed a farmhand, like stabbed oh, a farmhand right. yeah. and stole a horse. And he tried to blame it on like some traveling Romani. And then it turns out it cuts to, to Powell riding on his horse. Yep. And singing yep. some songs, I yep. do believe, as he does. So then the kids are kind of on their own floating down the river. Um, there's like a, a quick uh, beat where they um, kind of get on offshore and they grab some potatoes from a lady that's like handing out some scraps and food to children, but doesn't want them to stick around. It's kind of like, here's the potatoes. Do you guys get on? Get I know. On. It's it's just kind of sad thinking like that's probably what it was like during the Depression. And that woman's like a saint yeah. just giving away food to hungry children. Yep. Um, so it's like, you know, she seems like she's being very curt with them all but what she's doing is actually you know pretty amazing yeah yep definitely um and then uh you know we cut we keep cutting back from the children to powell and back and forth and you're seeing you know the kids are struggling and powell is like doing all this random stuff and he stops at like a peach orchard and it's like the sun's going down he's just like he's he's kind of uh testifying right to some farmers yeah. and then we cut back to john and pearl and there's like they make a point of, I guess, like showing that these kids are like on their own in the wild. There's like random animals. There's like some interesting shots of like there's a like, big bullfrog or there's like a tortoise. And uh, John looks overboard and he goes, they make soup out of that. I guess because they're an, hungry. Also, an owl is a big one, which I think is tying into like the night of the hunter thing um, with owls being nocturnal. But the kids end up uh, approaching a farm and there's like a barn. So they dock or they dock. I guess dock's not through. Where they kind of just throw the boat ashore and, and climb up into the the loft yeah of the and there's also there's kind of a shot before this. this is like these are the kind of shots that make me think god the direction is so good i can't believe uh this person didn't get to direct another movie but it's um they hear like someone singing inside um, a house and there's like a bird in a cage hanging in the window and the two kids are you know outside looking into this window of the farmhouse and pearl's like can we go home yeah she's, you know a little kid that doesn't really understand you know i think as we'll see later on you know still thinks of powell as a good guy um but they do they end up spending the night in the barn and then uh this is creepy but when they wake up the next morning uh powell is basically going down the street outside the barn on a horse singing and john's like God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like, maybe oh. he's not, but I, I was like that. And this, um, you'll notice, this is when the, um, I guess he's the forced perspective and the pony and the the little person where it's like, just the way it's staged is is really artistic and cinematic. It is, yeah. And so they, <laughs> they run out of the barn. They're like, jump down out of that loft and they get back into the boat. It didn't even need a scene where they cut back to John, like spotting them or anything, just knowing that he is forever present and on Following, their tail. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty scary. So they're kind of, they're back on the river. You can see like the, they're a little bit in peril because the current's, uh, pretty rapid. But, you know, we get some relief because they do come across a, a woman that's doing some work on, her land yeah. with some kids well they yeah they i don't even think they pull over intentionally it, it yeah. felt kind of they guided by a they, higher power yeah, yeah. yeah they were asleep and the boat kind of went ashore and happened to be right next to this woman's farm and she comes down and sees them in a boat 
And she like grabs a whatever, like a river grass or whatever. And is like, you get off this boat, and come inside. <laughs> and she, uh, she's, she's awesome. She's a really great character. She has uh, three other children. I think we're meant to assume that none of them are her children. Um, yeah. They're, I think she mentioned it's like kids who are born out of wedlock. Um, they just kind of wind up with her and she raises them and, you know, does, I think, a good job, a very good caretaker. Um, but she washes up John and Pearl and just has them kind of join her crew. So there's three girls and now John and Pearl. They're quickly kind of part yep. of the group. Yep. They, you know, they, they show them after they're cleaned up that they're all uh, going into town. Yep, um, they're dropping off. I guess they grow produce on yeah. the farm and they bring it into town um, and sell it to the grocer. Right. And then you uh, meet one of the older kids, Ruby. And yeah, she's, she's the oldest girl. Yeah, she's the oldest one, and she's sort of distracted by these boys. And one of the one, one of the boys is interested in her, so they're kind of. I guess inspired. they had kind of an arranged thing where is it? She says that she's going into town for piano lessons, but she's really going to to hang out with this boy then we kind of get to see what life is like at rachel cooper's house she gets the kids together and starts reading the bible and as soon as she kind of breaks out the bible john runs outside and i guess i mean he's probably done with um religious religious figures in his life blame him a preacher (laughs) killed his mother yeah Yeah. i'd be done too but one of the cool things about this scene is miss cooper is telling the story about moses and you know she kind of starts off on how he was found floating down a river in a basket and john is outside but he's sort of listening and i think it, it really catches his attention he's like this is like me you know like this is me and pearl we we kind of had a, a similar thing and so i think he like really digs that story yeah and he comes back in and and talks with her a little bit um asking about the story and gets her like an apple or she gives him an apple or there's an apple involved then we cut to uh this is a, a great way to get to find out that powell is back and or he is closing in and that's because ruby goes to meet the boy from earlier but Powell's in town. Basically, the boy is walking towards her and then Powell just steps in front of him, you know, out of nowhere. You know, for us, I mean, we we knew obviously he would be back, but he just steps up and, you know, introduces himself to Ruby and she's like, will you buy me an ice cream? And he's like, yeah, and of course. And it's creepy AF. Because, oh my gosh. Oh. She's young and he is old and it's, it's a bit weird, but yeah. she, you know, falls for those charms. And all Powell wants to do is just ask her about these two kids, Pearl and John. Yep. Um, And she's like, oh, yeah, this is Pearl and John. And they have a doll. No. (laughs) (laughs) But when they when they come back home, well, there's a moment. I can't remember exactly when it happens, but Ruby explains that she didn't actually have piano lessons and that she met up with and met who she thinks they're that is the father yeah it's i guess she's working on the farm and she basically sees powell ride up on his horse and she you know runs to to uh miss cooper to say you know i was just speaking to this man he wanted to know about pearl and john and she thinks maybe it's their dad and you know miss cooper is kind of suspicious because you know the two dirty children came up in a boat you'd think they didn't have anyone or anything to keep them in a place you know having a dad you'd think you'd be taking care of them etc so she she does sense that that something is wrong and this is confirmed when um john and pearl come so pearl immediately runs up to powell and is like 
yay he's here and then john comes out and he's like that's not my dad and like pearl dropped the doll when she ran up to him and you see kind of john and powell both like looking at the doll and then john like runs and grabs it goes under the porch through a crawl space and then you know powell starts going after him and then miss cooper gets her shotgun and it's like Get the F out of here. <laughs> yeah, and because like Powell has his switchblade out. And he's like yeah. chasing a kid with a knife. I mean, like just right out in the open. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. You're getting out of here. And then um, Powell's like, um, I'll be back at dark. <laughs> oh, my God. And then this is probably the would would you say the greatest scene in the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So we should splice in the singing here. Yeah. We will. So it's it's dark now. All the children are upstairs. Powell is sitting on like a tree stump in their front yard and uh miss cooper is sitting in a rocking chair on the porch holding the shotgun and just watching him and then he starts singing leaning leaning safe and secure from all alarms exactly um so he he is singing that and then she joins in Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, leaning on the everlasting It's a it's an actual like beautiful film beautiful moment. beautiful moment. oh man um but then ruby comes downstairs with a lit candle and um due to the candle being lit for a minute the like screen that miss cooper had been watching him through um is kind of opaque and if you look very closely you can see the moment that powell kind of disappears from the stump and like goes out of sight and then miss cooper you know blows out the candle and he's gone uh oh my gosh and she's like get the children yep. <laughs> bring them downstairs yep um, now it becomes a siege film <laughs> oh my yeah it's it is something else yeah um so it's kind of like yeah she's holding the shotgun pacing back and forth with the shotgun yeah and she's talking about more i think biblical stories in this part um where she's kind of pacing and then uh you you hear powell speak out from the other room and she you know tells the children to go upstairs so he's now like she knows he's downstairs you know they need to go where it's safe and then this is like real horror movie stuff suddenly he just like pops up and she shoots him because she's awesome she is she's awesome and she shoots him and i guess it kind of looks like it's in the arm or shoulder or something like yeah that. And he kind of stumbles back and runs into the barn runs into the barn and um she calls the police she's kind of like we got him cornered Yep. Got him cornered. Yep. It takes a little while for the cops to get there. It was Yeah, it's weird because it seems like by the time the cops get there, it's it's light out. So I don't know if maybe that confrontation had happened like just at dawn. You know, yeah, I guess he was still in the barn and he ends up coming out and um being captured by police. Who have the knowledge of his previous murders, right? Yes. Because they're I mean, 
I was really thankful at that moment, having not seen the movie or knowing how it was going to play out, is very satisfying. Yeah. Because they weren't like, "Who is this man?" And, you know, I was thinking maybe they're going to question her, and then yeah. maybe he was going to like escape or something. But no, they're like, "Okay, we know who you yeah. are. You were getting locked up." And John kind of has a moment where you know he's flashing back to because the the way they're arresting him when they get him on the ground and they're cuffing him is very similar to um, what happened to his father. So it's, I feel like it's uh, kind of nice a nice dovetail where it's like you know John. John just gets kind of inconsolable and he's like I don't I don't want the money like I don't want this responsibility dad why are you giving me this money and this secret and he takes the money out of the doll and just like throws it at Powell's so, like in the last minute you know when it's too late he gets you know basically gets the money that he'd been searching for and killing for this yeah. whole time so it's, it's uh poetic it is um, yeah yeah um and then they it's we're back in the uh, courtroom yep back in the uh, courtroom a nice reference to the the true crime when uh icy spoon in the audience shouts blue beard yeah yeah (laughs) um and uh you know he's he is sentenced to death but you know that's not enough for icy spoon which you know she was kind of the one that encouraged willa to uh go for it with this guy in the first place yes but she basically leads a lynch mob and like riles them up by you know bringing them to see the children it's like these are the children that he orphaned and they yeah all light torches and they storm the prison um miss cooper is able to kind of usher the children out and get them back to the house and actually the guards um sneak harry powell out the back door and um take him to to a different prison i guess where he'd be a little safer from the lynch mob you know he's he's still gonna gonna get it yeah oh yeah yeah he's gonna get it (laughs) yeah um and the yeah that that guard from earlier says uh that he'd be happy to be the one to hang him so yep yep yeah um and then that's uh what we're assuming to be the end of uh harry powell yeah, but they, they give a little happy ending addendum where it's uh, snowing and it's Christmas time and Miss Cooper gives presents to all the kids. Uh, Ruby gets a nice like brooch. So I guess she's kind of forgiven, it seems, for her role in bringing Powell to the family. Uh, John gets uh, a watch, which is like a sweet kind of callback to that first scene in the beginning where he's looking at that watch through the the window um after his dad is killed and he gives miss cooper an apple that he wraps up in a in a doily and it's very sweet and then it ends with um miss cooper talking about uh i don't know if it's a quote from the bible but it's like god bless the little children they're awesome the end yep yeah yeah it was a, it, it ended on like a, a high note yeah um which i thought was was really good especially after the whole grueling the rest of the film really. yeah <laughs> but yep. very enjoyable it was a really a really enjoyable movie yeah oh for sure i think uh, the movie was available to rent on itunes it was like four bucks i think really really good quality for an older movie i would love to get my hands on a criterion collection edition though i feel like i'm gonna start building our our true crime movie library this is definitely shot to the top of the list of ones that i would like to own a copy of so support us on patreon (laughs) yep yep yeah um it was a great one uh so that is the night of the hunter in 1955 and the adaptation i guess and um inspired by the murdering harry powers 
that's the movie. That's the crime. Let's uh, talk about some little bit of other stuff before we uh, we we call it uh, an episode. Um, what's your now playing, Chelsea? So I have two of them. If you are a member of our Facebook discussion group, you'll know that we just watched the first episode of the new American Crime Story series, the the assassination of Gianni Versace, and. It it is amazing. Um, I don't know if it's too soon to say, but I I feel like it's gonna be even better than the OJ series, which I also loved. It's just beautifully shot, beautifully acted. Man, Darren Chris, <laughs> I was worried that I would see him in this and only be able to see his character in Glee, but he just um, his performance is spectacular i'm so excited for the next episode i'm a little mad because we got to binge oj which was nice but we're gonna go ahead and splurge on the um that itunes whatever subscription where we could watch every episode every week and oh i'm so excited for next wednesday so we can watch the next one yeah um, and then my other now playing for anyone who uh has been a bit overwhelmed with all the true crime or horror movies in your life on Amazon Prime. There's a new streaming series called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's um, just hilarious. So funny. Definitely good for like a, a pick me up. It's it's excellent. I highly recommend it for um, anyone who needs to watch something a little bit lighter. We've all been there. Uh, definitely check it out if you have Amazon Prime. Great show. Yeah, really funny. Yeah. So what's your now playing, David? Uh, well, I just finished The Shining, and um, as while I was originally not completely sold on the um, the argument of which is better, the film or the movie, um, the the book, the film or the movie, the film or the book, the book is vastly superior to the movie. I love the book. It's quickly jumped to the top of my all-time favorite Stephen King novels. So, and in that vein, I started reading the sequel that um, Stephen King recently wrote, and that is Doctor Sleep. I just started it, so I'm looking forward to that journey. And that's uh, that's what I got. Uh, what about coming soon? My coming soon is... Uh, don't shun me for not reading it yet, but I've just started The Stranger Beside Me, the classic and rule true crime novel about Ted Bundy. Uh, the There's actually a Ted Bundy movie being filmed now in Cincinnati, and that's the one starring um, Zac Efron called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. So that's I guess that's also my coming soon, but that's really coming in quite a while because they're filming it now. I'm really excited. It's kind of two birds, one stone for me because I really want to read more in the new year, and I also love true crime, obviously. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to finally make my way through through this book. Very cool. All right. Um, what's, what's your coming uh, soon? Oh, my. Co- oh, I do I have a coming soon. Oh, I do. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm tired of talking. Uh, the Shape of Water. I think we're going to catch Again. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's I know, been our coming keeps... soon. This is like the third time it's been our coming soon. It but... is. But hopefully by next episode, we'll have seen it. And then that will turn into our now plane. And then it's a vicious cycle. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. 
so just uh you can you know you can find us on a lot of places i know we topped off the episode talking about our patreon please look that up there's some fun rewards and you get some bonus content bonus episodes behind the scenes stuff our facebook group cult of based on true crime um please uh request to join that we'll be pretty quick to approve you and get on there and then we have our um facebook page of course based on true crime podcast we enjoy instagram it's a lot of fun chelsea does a great job of managing that and our twitter Instagram is at based on true crime. Twitter is a little different. It is at true crime based. You can check us out. Well, you know, the show's streaming however you're listening to it. So whether it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Play or any of that other good stuff, um, hopefully we are there. And that is probably how you listen to this right now. We can also you can also stream it directly from our website if you like to do that. And that's based on a true crime dot com. Um, thank you, listeners. We look forward to our next episode that we'll tease out, I do believe, here in a couple weeks. And uh, remember, death is but a door. And time is but a window. We'll be back. <laughs>